Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fly Brother Radio Show. I'm Ernest White II, storyteller and explorer. I've lived in five countries and traveled to over 70, and I'm not saying all that to say that I'm all that. I just want to give you a little motivation, some inspiration, a few tricks and tips to go off and live an amazing fly life for yourself. Today on the Fly Brother Radio Show, I talk with Greg Gross, journalist and explorer who spent four decades writing for publications such as the San Francisco Examiner, the Associated Press, and the San Diego Union Tribune. Raised by a single mom, Greg caught the travel bug at the tender age of five when he took his first cross-country train trip. Greg started his blog, I'm Black and I Travel, in 2009 to chronicle his travels with his wife of 42 years, who sadly passed away in 2016, and whose ashes Greg plans to scatter in Ethiopia. In 2017, Greg led his first group tour to Ghana, and he owns Trips by Greg, which connects intrepid travelers with countries and cultures in Africa. We talk about traveling by car in the 1960s, connecting across cultures, multilingualism, travel history, Canada, the Gambia, and a whole lot more. We'll be right back with journalist and OG traveler Greg Gross on the Fly Brother Radio Show right after this. Welcome back to the Fly Brother Radio Show. I am here, Ernest, Ernest White II, Fly Brother, and I'm talking to Greg Gross of trips by Greg of I'm black and I travel. He is a OG on the, <laughs> and amongst the black bloggers, uh, the black travel bloggers, black bloggers in general. Um, but in addition to that, he is, you know, as we mentioned in the introduction an OG as a journalist, a travel journalist, uh, and, 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 you know, a news journalist. So thank you so much, uh, Greg, for coming on the show today. It's just an honor to have you with all your expertise and years of experience and just, you know, wisdom and knowledge. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm really pleased to be with you. And I was thinking about this just before coming on, remembering back to when I started my travel blog on Black and I Travel, when I set out to try to encourage more African Americans in general to mm -hmm. travel and more them to travel internationally in particular. Yes. And just a couple of years later, I realized that that movement had already started without me. That's already taking place. Uh, we have a whole generation of younger black Americans who are literally getting out there, seeing the world and not afraid to go anywhere, not afraid to do anything, try anything. And you are very much a part of that process. So I am very pleased to be here with you. Oh man. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, appreciate that, but I cannot, you know, ignore the fact that people who have blazed those trails before me have made it much easier for me. And then, you know, people that have come along to do it, even if we didn't know that you were doing this, you know, mm -hmm. you guys have been going out there and kind of and smaller numbers than now, but still, you know, importantly so just because you've been preparing other people for the wave of, uh, you know, black star power that they're receiving in all these different places. So thank you for again for being a pioneer. And, uh, you know, also, I just wanted to say that the technology, too, man, it allows us to do things that a generation ago people just weren't even aware that they were able to do. You know, especially considering the the differences in cost then versus now when it comes to travel. 
Oh, absolutely. There's no question about it. Just the ability to be able to get into the reservation systems and the airlines and the cruise lines and all the rest and be able to research destinations for yourself, research routes for yourself, research prices for yourself, even to find things like travel agencies like tour guides and companies who have local expertise and destinations. A couple of generations ago, these were all things that you would have needed gigantic books to look pour through and mm -hmm. you would have to have called or sent telegrams to people all over the place trying to round up information. Oh, Never wow. mind just the, you know, the financial cost of doing that. The cost to you in terms of sheer just time and man hours and energy trying to round up all of that would have been absolutely backbreaking. It was unthinkable. You know what? I'll go ahead. I'm sorry for interrupting. No, no. Now you, you, you practically, in some respects, have a travel agency sitting on your desk or even in your phone. And that fact has freed so many people to get out there and follow the travel dreams that they have. So the technology plays a huge role in all of this. Oh, man. You know, it's funny. It, it, you're talking about this. And I actually forgot about the fact that when I was much younger and, you know, I'll be 40 this year, I used to actually collect the official airline guide, the OAG, which for our listeners out there was a phone book sized schedule of flights for that, for all the flights that were happening all over the world for all of the commercial airlines. Um, you could get individual timetables from airlines, but the official airline guide was the reference book that travel planners who would be travel agents, consultants, you know, whatever, anyone working in the industry would use in lieu of today's, you know, web searches and internet searches. So you actually had to lug a book around and consult it that, you know, one that came out, I guess it was quarterly maybe. I, yeah, I believe so. Uh, what I remember about the OAG is two things. One in size, it was massive. And two, the print inside the book was microscopically small. You oh, could absolutely. go blind trying to read that thing. Right. And I mean, that, even when I was a kid, was still one of the main tools that was used to plan trips and, and, and travel. I mean, I just, you know, I really haven't thought about in a long time just how analog things were just a couple of decades ago. Oh, yeah. So, so much has changed. And I think I came into this sort of right on the cusp of the change. I'll tell you a small story, which is a true story, by the way. Okay. Uh, this goes back to about the 19, the very late 1970s, very early 1980s. Uh, the internet uh, was in its infancy. The web was in its infancy as far as people having public access to it was concerned. Mm -hmm. And, it was very difficult trying to reach out and connect with other people. I had somehow gotten connected with this one kid in San Diego where I live. And he was telling me his story, which just fascinated me. Uh, his father owned an electronic shop. Okay. And he was into travel as a 12-year-old. 
And th this was the point at which the OAG had just come online for the first time. Okay. Not that many people were aware of it. Not that many people even knew what it was. But he did. So he would go into the OAG. He found he would find it online wherever it was. He would go into the OAG and start picking out destinations for himself. First, the first thing he would do, he would take the little globe of the world on his desk, spin it, close his eyes, put his finger on it to stop it, and wherever it landed, that's where he went in. He consulted the OAG. He would do all of his research on that destination online. And then he would actually go through the steps to make an online booking wow. to go to that place. Everything short of absolute, of finally pulling out the plastic and making the purchase, which I don't think Dad would have approved of, <laughs> but everything else right up to that edge, he did. And he did this as a 12-year-old kid. I was blown away. Man, I was that kind of a nerd, too, so I'm not even <laughs> I used to, so I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, and at the time, when I was 12, that would have been like, I don't know, 1989. Um, I think, you know, the airlines that flew to my hometown were like the major domestics, which at the time included Eastern, TWA. Um, I, we had, for a short time, Air South, um, you know, and, and Piedmont. And some of these other airlines that uh, some of my old heads, old head listeners would recognize. But we oh, didn't yeah. have any international, even though the, the, it was Jacksonville International Airport, you know, the international designation, as you know, Greg, but uh, as I'm not sure people at home know, just means that you've got customs facilities and you're able to process a flight uh, internationally uh, from an international destination. But we didn't have any flights going anywhere outside of the U.S. at the time. But in the Jacksonville phone book, you still had the toll-free numbers for British Airways, Air France, I think Air Afrique might have been in there, um, uh, and a few other airlines that you could call and get the timetables. So I would get airline timetables. I would go with my parents, uh, force them to take me to the AAA headquarters, where I would like have these fake triptychs <laughs> made. And like, you know, get a whole rack of city maps because we were supposed to be going on a trip to, you know, a road trip through the whole damn country. And like, <laughs> leave with like 30 maps, any um, rest area or Denny's or IHOP that we stopped at, you know, they had those little banks of um, pamphlets and, you know, little tour brochures and that kind of thing. I collected everything I could. So my mom actually brought home a file cabinet from one that they had thrown out from the school that she worked at. And I just kept all my crap in there, man. So it sent <laughs> off a postcard to tourism bureaus, you know, throughout the U S and abroad and just had this massive collection of documentation and paperwork. And man, just to think about how much of that, you know, you just can't get back now because everything's online and at your fingertips. Exactly. But I was I was planning trips at 12 myself. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. At, at 12, my role in the family was the road trip navigator. OK. All right. All right. Well, it makes sense. It makes sense. Um, did you guys use the green book at the time? No, we didn't use the green book. Actually, we weren't aware of the existence of 
the Green Book. Okay. But we had our own set of road trip protocols that sort of paralleled the Green Book and its intentions. Okay. I mean, there, okay. Was, there were certain things that we had to do every day. There were certain things that we did on every trip. There were certain things that we made sure we did not do. Hmm. So, like what? Like, I know you grew up in New Orleans, but, uh, sorry, I know you were born in New Orleans, but yeah. you, you, you moved out to California when you were young. That's correct. Uh, Northern California, Oakland. Okay. Uh, my stepfather had family back in Northeast Texas. And, you know, my mother's side of the family and I, we, we still have family in New Orleans. So every summer we would make this drive from Oakland south down to L.A., cut across through the southern desert, through Arizona and New Mexico, uh, and then all the way across Texas to see my stepfather's side of the family, also in Houston, and then continue on to New Orleans, our side of the family. Okay. And, yeah, we definitely had a set of unwritten rules that we followed. We never let the gas tank get more than half full hmm. on any day. Okay. That was number one. Number two, we would leave every morning as early as possible, sometimes before the sun came up. And we tried, we had set a destination for that day and did our best to make sure that we were in that town before it got dark. Wow. Still, this was what, the 70s? This, this it, no, this is uh, 1960s. Okay. This is from the early 60s up until uh, 1968. Wow. We, uh, we would carry, we, we, had, we had an ice chest in the trunk that we would keep food in, uh, picnic lunch type stuff, so that if we found ourselves in a place that didn't look right or feel right, you know what I'm saying? Right. You just, and you just had to go by instinct, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was nothing specific that we would see that would tell us, you know, this might not be a good place to stay. But after a while on the road, you learn how to pick up the vibe. You know, when you come into a place and you're just driving down the main drag and heads just automatically turn to follow you, that kind of thing. Uh, right. Like, if you ain't from and, down uh, here, don't come around here kind of thing. Right. And we're talking Arizona and New Mexico and Nevada and Utah and, you know, places like, we're not just talking Texas and Louisiana. Right. Not the stere not just the stereotypical places. Exactly. So when you were on the road, I mean, you were pretty much at DEFCON 5 from the time you left home until the time you got where you were going. I don't mean to laugh, actually, but it's your delivery. Um, but were there... Places that were welcoming and accepting on the road at that time. There were. Uh, one of them we found the hard way literally by accident. We were traveling. This was a summer that we had decided to vary our route. Instead of going south through Arizona and New Mexico into Texas and Louisiana, we decided that we were going to go north. We were going to go through New Nevada, Utah, Wyoming. We're going to go to Chicago first and play tourist in Chicago. Okay. Uh, my mother and I had been to Chicago a couple of times, but I was just a very small kid then, and he had never seen it at all. So we decided we we're going to hit Chicago first, 
and then come south, follow the Mississippi down to New Orleans, and then come back through Texas and catch his family, and then head home. Okay. We got as far as Wyoming before we had a head-on collision with another car. Oh, wow. A bad one. Very bad. Without going into a whole lot of detail, there were six people, three people in uh, each car. I was the only one who was able to walk out of a car. Oh, man. Every, everybody was hospitalized. The driver of the car was killed. Um, I was, I think, 14 then. And the nearest hospital to the accident site was 100 miles away in Laramie, Wyoming. Hmm. Okay. I mean, it, uh, they, they strapped me into the front seat of the ambulance and put it, the other two folks in the back and we're going 100 miles an hour down a highway, licensed for a solid hour, blowing through one town after another without even slowing down. First couple of times, I'm asking the, the ambulance driver, we're not stopping. He says, there's no hospital here. So wow. we couldn't stop until we got to Laramie. Well, uh, at that time in Laramie, you could probably count the entire black population of the city on two sets of hands and mm. half of it probably were on the University of Wyoming football team. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, Real talk, man. Yeah. Thing is, when we were all in the hospital there, the black folks who lived in Laramie reached out to us. Oh, man. Uh, how they knew... I don't even know to this day. I mean, our accident was page one news, but there were no photographs, so they didn't see anybody. Right. But, but the small town, out man, yeah. That there was this black family that was in the hospital, and we were not in good shape. Um, it took me, a, when we got to the hospital, oddly enough, my legs quit. Oh. Because I, I had gotten out of the car, and I was able to walk to the ambulance, but when we got to the hospital, as if, the knees said, okay, we've done our job, we're done. Mm. And I wasn't able to walk again for another week after that. But the folks in Laramie made a point of finding us, reaching out to us, making sure that they got in touch with family for us, making sure that we had anything that we needed that they could do for us. Just that feeling, uh, the biggest thing that they did was just to let us know that we were not strangers alone in a strange right. land. Right, right, right. That they had, there were people there who knew we were there and they had our backs. And I, I couldn't even put a dollar value on that. I mean, that was worth everything to us. Right, man. I mean, that was a blessing just you were being looked out for exactly. by your own, you know, by people, your own people. Mm -hmm. But even beyond that, yeah, the majority population in Laramie was not a whole lot different, which was really surprising. Okay. Uh, when I was able to get my feet back under me again, I decided to go to the wrecking yard where our car was to try to retrieve our belongings. This is how my simple 14-year-old mind worked, right? Mm -hmm. I'm this one little kid, and I'm going to carry about four suitcases okay. by myself. <laughs> right. right. He man, you know, but you know, two, two miles to this to the hospital, right? I'm gonna walk down there first and then carry all this stuff back. 
about two blocks in, I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing? <laughs> I'm, okay, okay, I'm walking by this house trying to figure out what in the hell am I going to do here? Walk uh, by this house and this white lady and her little boy are sitting on the front steps. And I'm starting to feel very nervous and unconfident about everything. So I asked them again for the directions to this wrecking yard. Okay. And she looks at me and she says, were you in that accident? I said, yes, I was. Well, yes, we were. And so she's, they're telling me how far away this yard is. Okay, okay, thank you very much. The kid sitting on the steps offers to lend me his bike to go there. Oh, wow. He has never seen me in life before this moment. He doesn't even know my name. Right. And he's going to give me his bike to get down to this wrecking yard? Oh, man. That doesn't happen. But it did happen. Right. I thanked them for, I knew I couldn't, you know, ride a bike and carry all this luggage at the same time. I thanked them profusely anyway. Continued on down to the gas station uh, at the intersection of where the main highway was. And I asked them again for directions and they pointed it out to me. Mm. Right, so I start walking that way. I get about two blocks and the car pulls up. This was somebody who had been in the gas station, overheard our conversation. He says, it's too far for you to walk. It's 90 degrees out here. Get in the car. I'll get you there. Wow. And he did. Again, total stranger. Man, <laughs> well, these are the things that endear a place to you. You know, yeah. it's the connections that you make with people that are unexpected, that you know, and, and certainly, I mean, we're talking about a different time when you could argue that people were more neighborly then, et cetera, et cetera. But you were still a little black boy in the, in a wilderness. Exactly. Um, it was really gratifying right. on one level, confusing as hell on another level, but very gratifying nonetheless. Uh, but the best and strangest was yet to come in that experience. I get to okay. the yard. I go I go in the, the trunk of the car. I, I, there are some things missing, like the radio uh, that my stepfather had and things like that. But most of our luggage was there and everybody's medications were there. So I'm piling all this stuff out of the trunk. And now I'm seeing just what I have to deal with. And I'm like, oh, my God, how am I going to deal with all this stuff? Mm -hmm. So I start shuttling it out from the trunk to the front door of this place you know, a couple bags at a time. There was a Wyoming Highway Patrol officer there, and he was chatting up the young lady behind the counter. And uh, he he knew who I was because he was one of the officers who had actually worked the accident. Hmm. And so he asked what I was doing. I said, well, you know, we need our things, and, you know, my parents need their meds, so I'm going to take this stuff back to the hospital. Well, he says, well, how are you going to get this? I'll just walk. <laughs> and I guess uh, she looked at me and uh, he looked like this kid must be crazy right and so she looked at the officer and he looked at her and then he looked at me and then she looked at him and then he looked at me and it's like the next thing I know I have this Wyoming Highway Patrol officer piling our family luggage in the trunk of his black and white 
Right. And he is driving me back to the hospital. Man. This is like a movie. Yeah. But the thing is, if I had tried to write that as a script, no one would have bought it. They would have said it was totally unbelievable. Oh, I, I, I believe that. I believe that no <laughs> one would believe it. Truth is stranger than fiction. That it is. Yeah. But um, it's just amazing because, you know, those are the kinds of things that complicates our easy biases and, and, and you know, prejudices. Right. And is growth, you know, it offers growth for all of us, man. So thank you for sharing that story. Uh, you're, you're, you're very welcome. It's actually things like that are one of the main reasons I love travel so much. Yes. Amen, man. And you were just recently in uh, northern Canada, right? Or you were in British Columbia. Is that correct? Yes, I was. How was British Columbia? As always, beautiful. Oh, as man. always, unpredictable weather. It's one of those places where, as the old saying goes, if you don't like the weather, wait an hour. Okay, okay. It will change. But <laughs> uh, what doesn't change is just the sheer beauty of that place. The mountains, the forest, mm-hmm. all the water, the streams, the ocean. It's just incredible. You know, e- even their uh, nuisance plants, their invasive plants are beautiful. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I mean, hey, when the weeds look good and the kudzu, what else can, <laughs> what else can <laughs> <Yeah>. you say? <laughs> yeah, they've, they've got this one invasive plant called Scottish Bloom, and they hate it with a passion. They have groups organized just dedicated to going around and pulling it up by the roots wherever they find it. Oh, wow. Okay. But it okay. produces these little yellow flowers, and when that stuff takes off, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. All right. All right. Well, that's good. At least that's a, a, a botanical attraction that folks can go see in that particular place. Oh, yeah. They, they have a lot of that. Um, their forests are dense, tall. They extend for miles in all directions. And they're cedar forests. So uh, those are a treat not only for the eyes, but uh, for the nose as well. Oh, absolutely. You get all the cedar yeah. scent around there. It's uh, quite an experience. <laughs> it's like a... Air, a car air freshener all yeah. around you. Uh, yeah, yeah, moths will leave your clothes alone in that forest. Yeah, right. Okay. Okay. Where exactly were you in northern BC? Well, I was in the southern end of Vancouver Island. Um, ah, okay. Victoria, Not too far. Okay, Victoria. Victoria, the southern tip, uh, Nanaimo. Uh, basically, in that general area, sort of going back and forth. I want to get further north eventually. Um, There is this little coastal freighter that makes a run on an inlet between Port Alberni and a place called Bamfield. Okay. And it's the the only communication and source of supply for a lot of people who live in that little corridor. Okay. So they take supplies and equipment to people, but they also take passengers. All right. And what's the the name of the boat? Do you know? Um, the name of the service is the Lady Rose. They named that after the first ship that they were using. The Lady Rose has been retired, and I've forgotten the name of the ship that they're using in its place. It's not one of these huge cruise ships by any means or a gigantic container ship. You're talking about something that's fairly small. Okay. It's not going to take any more than about 
30 or 40 people. Okay, it's not the good ship lollipop either, I guess. Oh, no, no. Okay. No, you're on a substantial vessel. You're, <laughs> you're going to feel safe while you're on it. Okay, but, okay. But you're going to be in country that not many people get to see a lot of because there aren't a lot of roads in there and no highways really in there. Okay, okay. That just that sounds exciting to me. And, uh, you know, I made the mistake of thinking you were in northern British Columbia, mostly, I guess, because I was projecting my own dreams and fantasies of having a log cabin out in the woods somewhere, you know, just me and my beloved selling um, cupcakes to the bears and lumberjacks. <laughs> well, you definitely can do that up there. In fact, you can do some of that actually in southern Vancouver Island. There are okay. a lot of people who have their own little agricultural things going, um, tea farms, they have uh, chickens where they'll sell eggs to people, and the way they do it is kind of interesting. They'll just leave the eggs in cartons on the side of the road in a little box, another little box where you leave your money and oh, wow. so take your eggs, and it's all done on the honor system, and okay. it works. Hmm. Well, that's the, the beauty of Canada, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, speaking of beautiful, it is one of the most beautiful places to, on the planet to me. Um, and so, I mean, I'm from a green place. I mean, Florida is green, but it's a different kind of green when you're in, you know, the northwestern part of North America. What do you say? Absolutely correct. Um, it's, you, you, you've got these huge, tall forest of pines and cedars and other trees that when you see them at a distance they really don't look like they're all that but then when you get into amongst them it's almost like a cathedral effect Ooh, yes you know, good, you've good got the sunlight filtering down through these tall trees it's cool in there it's the air is fresh uh if you're really lucky there'll be a stream or a lake nearby and I love being in that kind of an environment because to me, that's, that, that's my spiritual place. That's my church. That's my temple. That's my synagogue. All of it. Mm. I mean, and I'm glad you said that, man, because a lot of traveling is just going to a place where you, you know, your soul can, can rest a bit. Absolutely. And that's really uh, what British Columbia does for me. And it's why it's always going to to be near the top of my list man well you know what i encourage everybody if they get the chance especially you know my listeners of color to head across the border you know it's it's just a phenomenal experience just close to home you know of course if you're from southern california texas florida it's not that close to home but my point is you don't have to travel around the world to get you know these kinds of uh I guess, really gratifying and, and, and fulfilling experiences. You can just go right across the border and uh, visit our friends in America's hat. Uh, and when we come right back, <laughs> right after this break, uh, Greg, please, I want you to tell me a little bit more about the uh, trips by Greg that you've got going on over to Africa and other places. All right, audience, please stay tuned. Welcome back to the Fly Brother Radio Show. I am here with Greg Gross of Trips by Greg, and I'm Black and I Travel. Again, sir, please thank you, uh, thank you for coming on today. 
so Africa, my man. It's well, a huge yeah. continent. Lots of countries. People don't know much about it. At least not what they not enough. Um, what are you doing with that in the travel sphere? What I set out to do with the travel agency that I created was to promote almost a different kind of category of African travel. Okay. Uh, the trips that I put together and the trips that I design for people tend to be non-traditional in the sense that they're not the traditional safari tour. Okay, exactly. Not it's not about animals. Uh, it's not. It's not about animals. Uh, the travel that I am promoting in Africa is culturally based. It's, it's more about people than about wildlife. You know, there's nothing wrong. Let, let, let me get for uh, full disclosure. Let me get this out of the way. First. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a traditional safari trip. No, no. I mean, it can be. Yeah, it can be absolutely a fantastic experience. But I'm looking to do something else. As I tell a lot of people, you can't have a meaningful conversation with a wildebeest. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I can't do it, as Denzel would have said. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that was a good uh, accent there. <laughs> yeah, th there is so much about Africa, its history, its heritage, its many cultures and peoples that we don't know. And right, right. not only simply because the information hasn't been given to us or because we're, we're so far away that we haven't really been able to connect or reconnect with Africa, but so much of what we've been told over the years and so much of what we've been taught coming up was either misinformation, disinformation, or I'll just say it outright lies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the only way we're really going to get past a lot of that, we're going to have to go and see and meet people and learn for ourselves. You know, every day I'm in Africa is like first day of school for me. Oh, wow. So it, it doesn't matter how many times you go back. There's still so much to learn is what you're saying. In, yes, absolutely. There is. Even if I go back to the same place more than once, I've still got more to learn. Mm -hmm. That's an incredible place of humility from which you start your journey there. And I think, yes. it's, you know, obviously it's necessary, isn't it? It's absolutely necessary. Uh just starting with the fact that never mind the number of countries in Africa, depending on who you talk to, there are either 54, 55 or 57 sovereign nations on the continent. Just in terms of people, you're looking. I, I ask people a lot of times, you know, how many different ethnic groups do you think there are in Africa? A lot of times they'll say two, black and white, or they'll say three or four, something like that. They're like 2,000 documented different ethnic groups on the continent of Africa. Right, because people don't understand the, what the words mean. They don't understand what ethnic group means or ethnicity versus race versus nationality. Right. And each of those groups, that this is people with their own language, their own culture, their own history, their own DNA. They, mm -hmm. have, they have their own story. Mm -hmm. Even within the modern-day national boundaries, Right, which are European creations in most cases. Exactly. 
yeah, very artificial creations that were drawn for the benefit of the European colonizers and not the people who lived there. Mm-hmm. So you have to sort of learn about all of this, sort through all of that, and get to know the differences. And it's really interesting. In a lot of ways, the relationships between the different groups on the African continent parallel a lot of what went on in Europe back in the day in terms of regional rivalries you know, all, all the back and forth that went on as people were sort of carving out their niche mm-hmm. on the continent. And a history that people, a lot of people don't even know about Europe, about how, you know, heterogeneous it was. And not right. these nation states that are even created in Europe are almost um, are, are established to the benefit of the landowners, not the, the, the commoners that live in these places. Oh, yeah. Um, a lot of times what you pick up on when Westerners are talking about Africa and they refer to different peoples as tribes and they say that in kind of a disparaging way, a mm-hmm. pejorative way, like these people are primitive, primitive or yeah. whatever, uh, conveniently ignoring the fact that up until fairly recently in human history, Europe was as tribal as any other place on the planet. Oh, absolutely. Right. Which is documented, but again, it's not a history that people seem to be interested in. No. Uh, That sort of conveniently gets skipped over. Right. But there is is so much history on the continent. I mean, I will be the rest of my life learning about this, and I know I'm not going to get any more than a small fraction of it. But it's not just ancient history that we've been sort of cut off from because of our removal to the Americas, our ancestors as uh, enslaved people. But there are things in Africa's history that relate to us today. Mm-hmm. Like when I tell people, um, they, they know about German concentration camps and all that, but I ask them where the first German concentration camp was. And they'll start telling you about Germany or about Poland or Czechoslovakia or someplace else. And no, that's not where it was. Where was the first German concentration camp? Number one, it existed almost 30 years before Adolf Hitler and the Nazis even came around. Wow. And the second is that it was in Africa. Where was it? Like Namibia? Yeah, a place called Shark Island. They weren't as scientific about it yet as they would be later. Right. They were just laying the groundwork, if you will. Yeah, exactly. For the Holocaust. Mm Mm-hmm. And they actually sort of created a mini Holocaust in southeastern Africa. Mm -hmm. A couple of tribes that actually dared to stand up to the Germans because they didn't really feel like being colonized by anybody. Right. As one wouldn't. Right. And the German response was to create this camp, round up as many of them as they could, put them in it, and basically work, beat, and starve them to death. Mm. But that all started there. And you find examples of this through Africa's more modern history. 
I mean, you, you look at the Congo and the role that Belgium played there. Right, right. Little tiny Belgium. Little tiny Belgium with a little-known bearded man named King Leopold II. Right. Who actually has the blood of more Africans on his hands than Adolf Hitler has Europeans. And it is strange because we learned about this when we read Heart of Darkness in, you know, high school. But mm -hmm. I don't think the magnitude uh, gets kind of transmitted to people when they're like the the num the information is there. But we get scared away by numbers. We get scared right. away by this kind of the statistical analysis of this stuff. And so right. people aren't really looking at it in terms of the humanity that is negatively impacted. Exactly. So you, you, there's an awful lot that you pick up on in that sense when you go to Africa. But the main thing for me is getting to meet people, getting familiar with the cultures in the place and just getting a sense of life and mm -hmm. how things work. And just even that can explode myths for you. Right, the the positive, the day to day of living every day right. and making life count. Yeah, I mean, the first time you set foot in a place where everything basically works the same as it does at home, in terms of a city with streets and a city with electricity and hospitals and airports and schools and police and all of the other elements of modern life and everything you see is being run by somebody who looks like you right right which for us coming from the states obviously is i mean it's a dream in a sense oh yeah i mean the first time you you see that I mean, it actually bowls you over. I mean, you almost don't know what to make of it. It's not just the doorman at the hotel. It's the manager of the place, the owner of the place, the people who are running everything. And they all look like you. Right. And I know to some people, you know, to some folks who, who consider themselves to be cosmopolitan and who either have family direct you know line to to places that are uh, majority black see mm -hmm. this kind of peter pan slash pollyanna-esque um point of view from the perspective of african-americans as you know something that's just unrealistic but i feel like coming from where we're coming from it's a beautiful thing just to see us in positions of power right Especially when we've had the myth drilled into us for so many years. Certainly. That we are incapable people. We are incapable of managing our own affairs. You know, that whole southern, oh, they're just like children mm -hmm. attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, in the countries of Africa, the children grow up to be adults and they are running their countries. Right. So... Specifically, where are the, the places that have kind of resonated the most with you, where you feel, you know, where you learn the most and where you may feel the most at home? Um, 
probably two places in particular. That would be Ghana and the Gambia. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, mainly, I'm ashamed to say, because both of those are English-speaking countries. Okay. Um, well, there's my, no shame in the fact that that's the language that you grew up speaking as well. No, the shame is that I'm 65 years old and my French is still terrible. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I tell people I speak just enough French to be able to start an international incident, and that's about it. All right. Uh, <laughs> Meaning, quoting Lady Marmalade lyrics at the wrong time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, which gets to another interesting element in African societies. Uh, and I was just thunderstruck by this the first time I encountered it in the Gambia. It is the nature of people in these countries to be multilingual because they live with all of these different ethnic groups side by side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in the Gambia, officially the language is English. The pre the predominant uh, local language is Mandinka. Okay. Uh, the country itself is surrounded by Senegal. Their official language is French. Right. But their predominant ethnic language is Wolof. Okay. So you get two brothers on the street in Dakar or in Banjul in the Gambia, and you listen to the conversation, you may hear all four of those languages in the same convo. Mm. Okay. Not, not, not only in the same, I mean, they'll be using, they may use all four of those languages in the same sentence. Even. Right, right. And that just amazed me. It was just a I was just completely blown away by it. It was, it was a fantastic thing for me to see. Okay. Uh, the other thing I was drawn to in those two countries is that they are an example of places in the world where religions are coexisting in peace without problems. Okay. Okay. Uh, it, there are several countries in West Africa in particular where at every official event it will be opened with two prayers, one from a Christian pastor and the other from a Muslim imam. Hmm. Okay. You have Christian neighbors who will celebrate the end of Ramadan with their Muslim neighbors. You have Muslim neighbors who will celebrate Christmas with their Christian neighbors. All right. It is not unheard of in a place like Accra, the capital of Ghana, to pass by a mosque in December and see Christmas decorations on it. Mm. Okay. So you've got everybody, you know, you know, coexisting side by side with no problems. Nobody's got issues with each other because of their religion. And that gives lie to the myth perpetrated in the West that Christianity and Islam or Buddhism or, so, or any other religion cannot live with each other in peace. Right. You see it happening on a day-to-day -day basis. And, I'm, and that's something you probably see in many different places. 
with on the continent. Not, I mean, obviously not just in these these parts of West Africa. I mean, you you see this in South Africa. You see it yes. in you know in Morocco. Mm-hmm. The the problem, unfortunately, is that with mainstream media, the thing that you're most likely to hear about is Boko Haram, right? Or Al Shabaab, okay. or Al Qaeda in the Magra, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad nauseum. Right, just very, very, you know, radical groups that far, fall far outside the pale of mainstream interaction between people. Exactly. But people hear about them often enough, they think that this is the norm in Africa, and that makes it a dangerous region of the world to travel to. Right, right. You know what, man? Tell, please tell us a little bit about your trips that you organize. Well, uh, there are basically two types of trips that I organize. Uh, one is a group trip, and that will have a preset number of days and a preset itinerary for people. And the, the number of people who can travel on these groups is almost unlimited. I like to try to keep them to around 30 or so more than that. After that, it becomes kind of nightmarish. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a whole class. Huh? That's a whole class of people, man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I work with tour operators in Africa who are quite comfortable working with groups many times that size. I mean, they keep telling me they want me to bring them groups of a hundred or more. And once I regain consciousness, I tell them I'm really not too comfortable doing that. Mm. But, um, ar- around 30, I think is a, is a good group larger than that. And it, it, you sort of overwhelm the experience and a lot of things sort of get lost. The other type of troops that I organize are, for individuals, couples, families, you know, smaller numbers of people. And those trips will be specifically tailored to whatever their interest is. Okay. For example, if, if they have an interest in, say, music, um, part of what I create for them may be drumming classes with well-known musical instructors and musicians in Ghana or in Senegal or dance instructors, that kind of, if if that's what they're looking for. Okay. So I'm sorry, uh, just to clarify the destinations that you're offering would be uh, Ghana, Senegal, where else? uh, Ghana, Senegal, Gambia, Benin, Togo, Nigeria, in Western Africa, um, okay. in the East, Botswana, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and to the South, where South Africa okay. and Namibia, and I'm working on organizing some trips to Zimbabwe. Nice. Okay, I'm sorry. So I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to make sure that uh, you know everyone understood where you where they could go with you um well, I, I appreciate it um i also organized some trips up to north africa as well i just had a client come back from egypt where okay. she 
It's seven days by herself, and she is still raving about that trip. Oh, nice, nice. And so you do individual trips as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, in, in, like I said, individuals, couples, families. Right. Uh, a friend, you know, whatever. Yes. And those will be tailored to the wishes of the folks traveling. And whenever they want to go, regardless of the wherever time. You, whatever, wherever you want to go, whatever you're interested in seeing or doing, we'll set it up for them. And you were saying that you've got uh, these different themes where they could uh, where they could take different courses uh, from music to would that include languages and cooking? Yes. Language courses, cooking courses, um, working on uh, see if we can put together something for creating fashions, clothing using you know the traditional African cloths, and also working on some health tourism in Africa since you find a great many traditional herbal medicines and practices and in Ghana in particular at the University of Ghana you have people actually making a scientific study of traditional medicines using traditional plants and herbs so it's it's not just sort of folk medicine or folklore mm-hmm. that you're talking about. These are things that actually have a basis in science. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you you run the you you cover from the rooter to the tutor then. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> to use a southern phrase <laughs> on y'all. Greg, thank you so much for coming on again, man. How can people find out more about the tours and about your, you know, you as a writer and as a, an explorer uh, and, and, you know, the projects that you're working on? How can people find out about that and follow you well, online? Um, the URL for my blog is, or the title of the blog is probably the easiest way to find it on Google. Just put in, I'm black and I travel, and it'll come up. Okay. Okay. Uh, for those who want to use the actual address, it's I M B L A C K N I the word travel dot com. Okay. Uh, as far as having questions about arranging trips, best way to get a hold of me is at my email address is info at tripsbygreg dot com. Okay. And Greg is G-R-E-G. Sometimes folks tend to put an extra G on the end. That won't work. Now you got the regular Greg. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> or they can or they can send me a text or give me a call at 858-437-2611. All right. Thank you again, man. This has been... I could listen to you tell your stories all day. I really just kind of... I, I need to I, actually. I need to talk to you about some travel that I've got planned myself. But um, I'd love to hear about it. It was indeed a blessing having you on, and, and I'm sure the listeners really got a lot out of just hearing you talk about uh, your life as a traveler over the decades. And uh, we look forward to many more decades. So we really appreciate you, man. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, you and I can talk travel from now until December. Uh, without even a pause. That's and true. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I actually need to do more listening because I just I, I learned so much. You know, I'm a history buff. And anyway, uh, we, we're running out of time. 
I will <laughs> catch up with you later, uh, Greg. Folks, please stay tuned. Uh, we've got a little bit more on the Flapper the Show, Flapper the Radio Show, right after this. Welcome back to the Flybrother the Radio Show. As Greg mentioned before the break, you can find out more at Trips by Greg. That's Trips by G-R-E-G dot com. And at I'm Black and I Travel. I-M-B-L-A-C-K-N-I Travel dot com. You can reach out to me directly at Ernest at Flybrother.net or visit our website, Flybrother.net. We also appreciate likes and follows on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Flybrotherfly and on Instagram at Flybrother. Please share any questions, content, or stories that helps me help others thrive. Lastly, if you do enjoy the Flybrother Radio Show, please rate, subscribe, and even sign up to make a monthly contribution to keep Flybrother in the air and on the air. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Flybrother Radio Show. Have a phenomenal weekend and an amazing week. Ciao, ciao.